Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Steph Cha is the author of Follow Her Home, Beware, Beware, Dead Soon Enough, and Your House Will Pay. She's the noir editor for the Los Angeles Review of Books and a regular contributor to the Los Angeles Times and USA Today. She lives in her native city of Los Angeles with her husband and two basset hounds. Tom Lutz is the author of several books, including And the Monkey Learned Nothing, Drinking Mare's Milk on the Roof of the World, and Crying. His work has been translated into a dozen languages and named among the New York Times notable books. His book, Doing Nothing, won the American Book Award. He is the founding editor of the Los Angeles Review of Books. Born Slippy is his first novel. Please give Tom Lutz and Steph Chaw a warm skylight welcome. Thank you. Thank you all for coming. Wow. This is so nice. You always assume nobody's going to show up, so <laughs> it's really great when people do. Um, I'm, uh, I'm going to read. Uh, I had a really hard time figuring out what part of this to read um, and uh, because it's all so good. <laughs> and... Uh, I... Um, and I th and and part part of it is because it, the one of the two main characters is really uh, he's got a he's he's not safe for work <laughs> and uh, and he's uh, he's not PG at all. Um, in fact, it's okay. Is it? Oh, yeah? yeah. Okay. All right. In that case, all right. I was gonna just I was gonna do a quick change there, but if, as long as mom says it's okay. <laughs> there is a, there is a, a scene that uh, that I that I practiced reading that I thought I would read that has a uh, in which this fellow his name is Dimitri um, is is regaling um, a, a man and his thirteen year old daughter and part of the excruciating nature of those ten pages is that you're always he hearing this through the ears of the thirteen year old daughter so um, I didn't want to really do that to an actual thirteen year old daughter but. Um, we, uh, what I'm going to read is, uh, the, the novel is about Frank and Dimitri, and Frank uh, is a 28-year-old, kind of a loser, handyman uh, in Western Massachusetts. Dimitri is uh, the son of Friends of Friends, who he's coming through the U.S. before he goes on to university, um, which... Frank is a little jealous of Frank's an autodidact, but kind of very good, got a big chip on his shoulder about being inferior to everybody and you know not really worried about that. Um, and uh, Frank has a chance, he's building a big house in Connecticut and, and he and the guy who's building it with are kind of ripping off the state of Connecticut in order to do it. And, and, but it's his big break. He's gonna now kind of have a, have a real life. And Dimitri kind of screws that up in a number of ways, some of which you know about at the point where I'm going to pick this up and some of which we don't know yet about yet because it keeps moving back and forth from the year 2000 when they meet and they work together on this building site and live together in a tent on the building site. And um, over the years, Dimitri keeps coming back um, 
Frank at one point thinks he's, it's like he's offshored his conscience. And he keeps coming back to get lectured at by Frank for reasons that we don't, aren't entirely clear. But uh, this is the first time Dimitri is back in the US uh, after going off to college. All right, if you had asked Frank at the end of that long summer if he'd ever see Dimitri again, he would have said absolutely not. Dimitri had proven himself not just a lousy worker and a horrible slob, but a full-out criminal. And he had fucked over Frank in a half dozen ways. And well, long story short, Dimitri is back in England, so chances were slim to none they'd run into each other. Frank had never been west of Pennsylvania or east of Rhode Island, so how would he end up in England? When they finished the house in Connecticut, Paul and Margie, Paul is the guy that he's in this in cahoots with, but uh, Paul and Margie moved into it instead of selling it, and that was Dimitri's fault too. He had completely tanked Frank's relationship with Paul, everyone's relationship with everyone, and by the time he left, all was fucked, and Paul wasn't about to be reminded of the debacle every day by working with Frank. Paul's excuse was that his wife had forced his hand, made him keep the house because she fell in love with it, and of course she fell in love with it since it was tricked out with the best plumbing fixtures and surfaces money could buy, expensive tile, overpriced cabinets, the latest granite countertops, more bathrooms than a family could ever use. Paul never paid him anything, the scumbag, beyond the starvation wages he charged to their joint venture to feed Frank's busted family and keep him in American cheese sandwiches for five months. When Frank ran the numbers, he ended up with a considerably lower hourly rate than he paid Dimitri. He knew that Paul was angry with him and that he blamed him for Dimitri's various crimes and that it gave Paul a certain amount of satisfaction to screw him out of his half. Frank walked away with a pile of credit card debt and Paul walked away with a house worth a million dollars. And Paul was mad at Frank. Chief John Ross had it right, Frank thought. We never forgive our victims. He did see Dimitri again though, just two years later. Frank was on an, on an upswing, his business improving. The house he built for Paul was beautiful and it got him other jobs. For those, he had the lawyer do the contracts and had everything spelled out. And the one housing sector that didn't freeze up after 9-11 was the high-end stuff like he was doing. He made decent money. It wasn't the big money he hoped to make with Paul, but he could see a path to eventually getting there without him. Before Dimitri's junior year, at university, as he said it, and I, is there, are there any English people in the audience? I really, I apologize for what's gonna happen for the rest of the evening. Uh, I'm gonna do this terrible English accent that you know may sound English to you, but I doubt it, and, uh, but I'm hoping it will sound English to other people. Uh, and, uh, but I can't hear him speak without the accent, I'm afraid. I've tried reading it without it, and it just doesn't work, so. Fair warning, I guess. Uh, he came back to the States, Dimitri, that summer to take the Green Tortoise, a hippie alternative to Greyhound, a $2 hostel on wheels across the country. Frank knew he should still be pissed at Dimitri, but the pain of the various betrayals was dim by time and prosperity. Everything had already changed so much. Only two years, but they were long ones. He never forgave, Frank thought to himself, but he always seemed to forget. Over time, he found himself remembering the good parts, his sense of being an intellectual mentor and moral conscience, 
not the bad. He did the same with Tracy too. Tracy is his ex, only remembering the upside. Maybe that's the way people were. Maybe that's why we put up with each other. The green tortoise, Frank said, and it sounded a bit derisive as they walked into the kitchen of his apartment in Avon. Don't be such a snob, Frankie, Dimitri said, throwing his duffel bag on the floor. I am not a snob. Well, for a non-snob, you do quote quite a few glitzy writers, he said, looking around the apartment. This is a step up from the old tent, eh, Frankie, my boy? Yeah, really, Frank said. No thanks to fucking Paul in either case. Well, Dimitri said, opening the refrigerator and grabbing a beard, handing Frank one. Let's not go there right this moment. He meant let's not go, let's not talk about it ever. Anyways, he said in his American accent, do you realize how expensive prostitutes are in the United States of America, Frankie? It turns out that in those four days when Matty and her two friends from the Green Tortoise were living in the land yacht, and let's not talk about that right this minute either, I did the math and I had roughly 8,000 US dollars worth of sex her two friends. I didn't tell you about them. Well, I suppose we didn't talk about much of this, did we? Sally was a waitress from Jamestown, New York, and was a tiny girl, but had the most ridiculous, really quite large, really quite exorbitant knockers, hard as boulders. She must have been five feet tall at most, and she had a breathtakingly minuscule vagina. I could barely get a finger in it, much less my cock, although Lord knows I tried. Mary was the opposite, a really tall girl, and it was all in the legs, the longest legs I've ever seen in my life. In my memory, Frankie, even though I know rationally this can't be true, <clears throat> you see, it's really tricky to read this shit. <laughs> and they see, it's, you know, it's really stuff that's better consumed in private. But, <clears throat> and they seem to each be three feet long or more. Is that even possible? Ah, oh, God, I don't miss this kind of talk, Frank thought. Don't miss it at all. Margie was right. He's really just a swine. Frank caught Dimitri looking at his nauseated face, and he seemed to actually enjoy it. Can I borrow this, Dimitri said, as he grabbed a tape measure from the tool belt hanging on a hook near the kitchen door. Just like old days, I never could remember where I put mine down, could I? So let's say she was the same length to the knee as me, about two feet, and the same from the belt to the top of the head. He the, held the tape measure so that it ran for over his nose to his belt, or about two eight. If she had a three foot thigh, she would be seven feet eight inches tall, which she definitely was not. The three feet thigh is an aberration of my memory, what T.S. Eliot called an objective correlative, right? No, that's not what it means, Frank said. But then he thought, well, maybe, he, he wasn't sure. We had several days of what was for me an absolute paradise with everyone pretending nothing was happening. The girls all very lovey-dovey with each other, everything very discreet, and me as happy as a man can be, the Neapolitan ice cream of sex every day. Except that, as I found out, not everyone was pretending. Mary didn't, as it turns out, know that I was boffing Sally and Maddie as well, nor did Sally know, and so when it all was uncovered, so to speak. There seemed a, a great wailing and grinding, rending of garments and gnashing of teeth. A lot of great makeup sex, until Mary and Sally found I was having makeup sex with both of them. Maddie was the imperturbable cucumber she always was, but essentially we had to drop off the other two at a bus station. 
And the point of all this is, I think it should be obvious, Frankie. I developed an idea about the kind of women who ride the green tortoise based on a quite delectable sample. And if history repeats itself, which we know it does, the entire trip will be effectively free. You had to come here for this? There are no women in England? Well, Frankie, I found that unlike in their home environment, women, when traveling, are much more like men, ready to roll the dice. Women at home have all this pressure from their girlfriends to land the big game, you know, put the head on the wall. Naturally, they don't want to marry every eligible man they meet, but they are determined to make us act like we want to and parade us around to their family and friends and make us change our clothing and hairstyle. Well, all the while, and if they were to be honest, they would have to admit it, that mo not only are they planning to dump us for various infractions as soon as our trophy tour is over, but they decided what the dumpable infractions were the night they met us. They, never, they entered the fray marvelously well-armed. Women who are traveling have no audience for their trophies, and so they are, like we are, ready to fucking suck and make a pleasant night of it. He took a sip of beer. Uh, I forgot how easily distressed you are, Frankie, by such talk. Which is what you want to do, right? Distress me? Frank said, which stopped him for a moment. The thing that distresses me is how much more cynical you've become. Yeah, Dimitri said, right. He stretched the word out so it sounded like a version of riot. You getting laid at all, Frankie? I suspect not. You don't want to get pulled around by your nose ring by a flock of vile hens either, I assume, not to mix my barnyard metaphors. Uh, thus, if you want to get some trim, a laudable American addition to the idiom, becoming more appropriate every day as shaving and waxing conquers the last outposts of territory formerly haired. The only way to get it is to buy it, which is where I began. It's expensive and you're even tighter than I am. So I can't imagine you dropping a couple hundred bucks and oh, a couple hundred dollars a bang on a regular basis. Then you dress this frugality up as moral reprehension. You ought to take a little trip on the tortoise one day to do you good. Frank had busied himself putting together some dinner from the fridge and chose to ignore this, knowing Dimitri would start off on something else right away, which he did. Frank let him monologue his way into the night, and they managed to avoid any tricky subjects, because what would be the point? Dimitri had changed his major, his major from physical therapy, yes, Frank thought, funny, to business, and transferred to another university Frank had never heard of, and reported himself to be quite a success. The thing about university, Frankie, is that basically you only have a couple of elementary chores in each of your courses. The first is to make your professors feel fantastically smart. And the second is to make them think you want to be exactly like them. Most students think you, you parrot back whatever they say, but since the professors are flattered like this every day, they're jaded and their higher vanity makes them look for proof that they have taught you not just what to think, but how to think. A stupendously high standard, really. How can they all do that? Three or four or five of them a term. So you pretend to vigorously disagree with some minor point they've made while seating all the major ones slavishly. Your apparent struggle and error, which you let them correct, convince them they're having an effect. Then you hint you want to do research in field X, because whatever their vanity about teaching, their narcissism about their research is massively stronger. Most of them will explain that you need, to, you need decades of training before daring to attempt the awesome and intricate feats they manage, which is perfect since your path is greased forever by the offer and you didn't want to do the research anyway. 
you tell you they tell you to write a term paper that would be nothing more than a summary of their latest white paper, but they never remember what they told you to do three or four months later, so you hand them anything. anything. I've given the same research project to every one of my business professors, simply inserting new recent data each time so they never suspect it's an updated version of the one from the preceding term. That's god-awful, Dimitri, Frank said, having slowly heated. Imagine what that sounds like to me. I'd love to go to university. I'd love to take this, have that kind of chance, and you're just fucking off, cheating your way through. Christ, what a waste. Don't you care at all? Don't you want to learn anything? Whoa, Frankie boy, what a torrent from you. If I remember correctly, you yourself remember not a single thing from your wantonly brief time at university. It turns out Frank did actually go to college uh, briefly. Um, but he was smoking a lot of pot and he forgot he was going. Um, so he went, was taking a couple of courses and he failed them both. So um, this seemed to Frank a low blow. That aside, you needn't worry, I do want to learn. And the research I show them is research I'm actually doing. Building data in an always evolving and actually quite useful project, unlike most of theirs. I'm learning the Asian markets. I've decided it would be a gigantic error to settle for being a capitalist pig when I can, with not an iota's more effort, be an imperialist pig. Faulkner said Harvard teaches you how to drown yourself, and Siwani doesn't even teach you how, what water is, Frank thought. And so who knows? Maybe British universities teach smart-ass nihilism. They managed not to talk about the motorhome disaster, or about the debacle with Margie, or his pimping in Connecticut, or his other crimes, not that time or the next. Frank knew, after a while, what Dimitri would say if he ever did co confront him with, with, with them, with those crimes. Risk, as he put it much later, apropos of something else, after he had made his first fortune. Risk is the essence of our world, Frankie. And his risking of lives certainly didn't end that summer. Far from it. Risk, he said with that fucking grin, makes the world go round. Among the lives he risked, eventually, was Frank's. That was so fun. Hi, Steph. To read. <laughs> hey, um, so. Um, it's funny, we just had this uh, conversation on for crime reads about um, kind of the nature of noir, and um, we'll get into that a little bit later, but um, but you, sa you started off the conversation by noting that it was hard to know who had seniority, because mm. in some ways, uh, I mean, obviously you've been, you've been consuming noir for much longer than I have. You're also kind of my boss. I, <laughs> kind of your boss, and, and, and who's got seniority? I mean... It's not that hard a question. I mean, look at my hair. But yeah. this is your first novel. You're a debut novelist. I am a debut novelist. And you have you have four. Yeah. Three I've of them are noir novels. For, I've been doing this for, I guess, seven years now. So mm -hmm. I have a little seniority there. Oh, well, in that case, I'm, I have seniority because I've been doing it for about 50. I just finally finished it. Yeah, yeah, so that's so that's what I wanted to ask you, um, yeah. ha, uh, because <clears throat> you know you've published several books, um, and I and um, you've been writing professionally for years and years, um, and so um, I wanted to ask you what yeah when you started this novel was it your first was it your first crack at a novel 
Um, and can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, why now, why this book? Yeah, the the uh, it's far from the first crack. Um, my first my the first attempt at a novel was very much like Frank's attempt to go to college. <laughs> I was kind of pretty stoned, and I forgot I was writing it. <laughs> um, no, I did. I did not get very far. I I really I did think that I was that I was a novelist. I mean, I I wanted to be a novelist. I was planning to be a novelist, and uh, I just I hadn't quite worked out the sitting down and writing part of it. <laughs> I, I, I felt like I was taking care of all of the other parts. I was hopping trains and I was doing the stuff that I thought novelists did. I was doing you know, my drugs and my, 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 la my life, my wild life. But I, I never got around to it. And then I, I got a job at one point. I was cooking breakfast and lunch. I was in my late 20s. I already had a kid or two. Um, and, uh, I, and I got a job cooking breakfast and lunch at a college. And the college um, uh, offered to let me go to school there for free. Um, they were just looking for warm bodies to stick Pell Grants on, you know, stay, stay alive. Um, and so I started going to college at 28 or so. And uh, I realized that there are these people called professors and they read books for a living. And I thought, okay, I have found my calling. Uh, and I kind of stayed right through. I went right, right through, through the PhD. And that PhD route took me away from the novel in a couple mm -hmm. of ways. Um, I, when I was in college, I was writing a few short stories and publishing them in the, you know, the University of Massachusetts literary magazine. Um, still planning to be a novelist. Um, but then, uh, you know, you study for a literature PhD. It means you read a million books. And um, they're all better than you, is what it feels like, right? Then, so it's really, it's a, you know, I have, you know, Toni Morrison sitting on this shoulder and Henry James on that shoulder, and they're laughing at me when I sit down to write a novel. So uh, that's that slowed me down, and I also, you know, needed to write, you know, Publisher Parish. I needed to write my other books. I needed to write the books that I was getting paid to write as a as a literature professor. So I wrote those first. And then I got the job at, at UC Riverside in the creative writing department, which meant that I could write whatever I wanted. And then I started writing the novel in earnest. So that's still 10 years ago. Was this, uh, was this the novel that you started writing then? This is the novel I started writing then. So, did it so when, did you, um, when did you finish the first draft of it? Um, seven years ago, five years ago, I don't know, long time. Because it, 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 I, I, I changed it from third person to first person to third person to first person to third person, uh -huh. and then uh, I, I, it's it, there's a, a almost half the book takes place in this um, in this first in the first year of it of the of the story, and uh, so it, the, the way it was shaped it was just it seemed very misshapen, and I couldn't quite I kept trying to push what was happening later further forward and further forward, and that wasn't working. Uh, so I chopped it all up and, and, and put, uh, I have a chapter on, in 2000, then a chapter in 2002, chapter in 2000, 2004, 2000, 2006, 2000, 2007, and I just kind of kept chopping it all up and doing that. And uh, for some reason that seemed choppy. <laughs> <laughs> so I, uh, I kind of uh, 
mushed some of them back together, and but ended up with a non-chronological version of it, and then changed it back to third person the last time, and then it started to feel like the right shape. And so you spent you spent more time editing this than you did drafting it. Oh it yeah, sounds like yeah. So um, so I guess it was the was the primary thing that you went back and forth on the perspective was it, it was originally what close third with uh, both Dimitri and Frank or how did you? I was I I really love um, Elmore Leonard and uh, Carl Hyacin and uh, the kind of comic noir mm-hmm. um, uh, and Mark Haskell Smith, uh, our local local practitioner in that genre, and they have this they use this um, three plot structure um, where you follow one character or characters, then you get another set, and you get another set, and you just go chapter, 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 and then they all come together at the end, and that was what I thought I was gonna do. Um, Most of that draft is just gone, Mm -hmm. just doesn't exist anymore, so there there were some real um, trash can versions. (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, uh, I think, I, I I always get precious about throwing stuff away, but I guess sometimes it's necessary because um, it's a pretty it's a pretty spare novel. Like I think you whittled it down and got to the core of it. Thank you. Um, um, is is there any part of it that you parted with that uh, that you wish you hadn't, or that you want to keep for like another project, like um, you know the work that you put into it? Um, no, <laughs> no. There's nothing. There's no nothing that I threw out that was worth keeping. But I, but I, I am not sure I'm through with these folks. Mm-hmm. I think maybe still slippy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> might, might, I, I might, I might get to at some point. So, um, so what was the first um, piece of this book that came to you? It was, uh, it was one of Dimitri's monologues. Okay, I would have guessed Dimitri. Yeah. Uh, just, just having, having read the book and even hearing you read him, because mm-hmm. um, uh, he's, he's kind of this voice that carries the book. I, I, it, um, I mean, I mean, he reminds me a lot of like a Harry Lyme kind of character. Yeah. I mean, for I think for explicit reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, but. Um, because no. he he quotes them several times among <laughs> yeah. other things. Yeah. <laughs> but even before, I think mm-hmm. I think when I was reading the book. Um, mm-hmm. I felt like that was there. There was something about of that dynamic that went into this friendship, and then I think once he started quoting Harry Lyme, I was like, "Yes, this is it." Yeah. Which which is um, part of the pleasure of the novel too, as a, as somebody who is a fan of the genre. Um, so uh, let's talk a little bit about Dimitri. Um, okay, one one quick thing about Third Man, though, about uh, Harry Lyme. Um, I, I did an interview uh, in New York the other day that with um, the guy. Um, Tobias Carroll, have you run into him? The volume one, Brooklyn. He, and he um, and and he asked me about the uh, the literary references in the in the book, and I said um, that it was your novel, your first um, your first novel, Follow Her Home, um, which it, your your um, accidental detective uh, is a Raymond Chandler nut, right? I mean, she's yeah. obsessed with Raymond Chandler. And that um, that idea really kind of freed me up, re- reading yeah. that and thinking, I don't have to be afraid of you know the kind of anxiety of influence. I don't have to be yeah. afraid of these other these other writers. I let them in. It. Yeah. <laughs> so. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. No, because uh, we actually met because you read my first book. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and that was in 2013. And, you know, nobody read that book. So <laughs> I was very <laughs> appreciative. And then you gave me a job. Um, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I, wa- I, I wanted to talk about Dimitri because, um, because I think his voice, I, I could see that being kind of the first thing that pops into your head. I mean, how much of his character uh, kind of came with that voice? And, um, and, and um, did you always envision him as this kind of anti-hero, villain, rapacious, imperialist pig? Uh, or did that kind of come later? I, it came pretty fast, if it wasn't already there. It came pretty fast. Um, there's a, you know, it's a, you know how uh, Twain, uh, somebody, he tells some story at a dinner party and somebody says to him, um, God, that's a great story. And he said, yeah, I know. It gets better every time I tell it. <laughs> um, right. And there's, so there's a way in which there are some real life um, models, real life people mm-hmm. that turned into literary char- characters. But by the time you've rewritten them a hundred times, they become very, very different people. Um, and th- those, uh, Dimitri, Dimitri's voice was the voice of somebody who I, who talked to me in a very similar way, just get told a long story. And um, I thought, okay, that's a, that's a character. And I started, I started writing from that person. Um, so th- th- with that as the base, you know, kind of thinking what happens to an absolutely amoral person in this world. Well, they become president, right? <laughs> I mean, no, they, no, they, 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 they become the the people who don't mind killing people to make money. Uh, they mind. They're the kind of people that don't mind destroying the planet to make money. They don't, don't mind destroying anybody at any moment for any reason. So um, I, w- I was sure that the, that the only reason to kind of, I mean, I think there's something very fun and funny about Dimitri, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, I mean, he's very he's very charming. I mean, it's, he's, he reminds me of a certain kind of person that I, that, that I run into once in a while where um, you kind of think, um, how's this person getting away with like everything that he's saying? <laughs> uh, and it's usually a man. Mm-hmm. Um, and right. he's usually funny. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you step back for a second. It, it happens once in a while where I'd be, I'll be like describing a person to my husband and he'll be like, why did you hang out with this person? He sounds like a terrible person. And then it's just kind of like, oh, like, you know, when you're actually like in the room with him, he like is very, and then you realize, oh yeah, this is a terrible person. Uh, but like there, there's a, there's a charm that, um, that, uh, you know, makes him worth spending time with. I mean, I think I think if he weren't charming, it'd be very difficult to read, yes. r- to read his voice and to read his monologues. But um, but there that that charm is a key piece of his character. Um, and actually, I, I I got I was curious even hearing you read just now. Um, you know, you're a decent, reasonable, upstanding person, and uh, you, and um, you have apparently spent ten years of your life um, writing in this this man's voice mm-hmm. um, and and I'm guessing having a lot of fucking fun doing yes and you know I I wonder when you're when you're writing Dimitri is there is there like um, is there like a delight in kind of kind of um, I- embracing like the worst version of like your thoughts or oh, yeah. like the thoughts that like any that you can imagine and like getting that on paper yeah, and 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 I think that there, that's part of the delight, hopefully, that that an audience has, right? I mean, we love we love our sociopaths. We we love 
you know, Tony Soprano, Walter White, all of them. We let we just love them. Uh, we love to watch them do whatever they want, whenever they want, however they want, right? So there's a there's a there's a pleasure in 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 letting it go, and 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 also a kind of pleasure in feeling like um, feeling our distance from them mm -hmm. at the same time. So uh, Frank allows me to. To, to, to feel the distance at the same time, too. And yet Frank is completely compromised by this person oh, yeah. and their relationship. I mean, it's an interesting dynamic, too, because it starts as this, not not exactly a mentor-mentee relationship, but Frank is older, and he's the one who has hired Dimitri, and he has this, he's this older family friend. Um, you know, he's friends with his parents. Mm -hmm. And so there's, there's, it seems like there would be this dynamic where he is taking this young man, young 18 year old man under his wing. And yet the, and yet the power dynamic becomes very, it becomes inverted very quickly. Mm -hmm. um, and he becomes completely swept away by this 18 year old who, um, and, and they maintain this friendship over many years. And you know, one of the things that I find interesting about Frank as a character is they keep meeting um, every time they meet um, Dimitri is wealthier, he has done more amoral things, and he kind of reports on them. And like Frank doesn't really call him out on it except in kind of like a nudgy way. Right. Um, and, and he is deeply disturbed by him, but there's a part of him that, um, that is jealous of him, that admires him. And, um, and, and you start, you know, one of the things I wondered, because we're in Frank's point of view, um, is uh, is how his life path has been formed by this person, and if he's even, and and to what extent he's even aware of that. Like, if he hadn't met this eighteen-year-old, like, um, would he have made different life choices? You know, he's mm -hmm. somebody who has a lot of trouble with relationships, for example, yeah. and he's somebody who, um, who through through uh, through his own work ethic, but like he also becomes very wealthy. Yeah, I mean, there, I think that there, the what I finally decided was worth. Paying attention to, right? Because it's a, it's a, they're, they're little people, right? That I've made, right? The, mm -hmm. So they have, they, they contain multitudes, but they, um, but the things that I thought was were worth paying attention to with them was, were, were, you know, how does, how does everyday misogyny, get, you know, kind of re recreated in the in its next, avatar. And, and one of the ways it does is through models like mm -hmm. Dimitri or, or Tony Soprano or, mm -hmm. or, 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 or through these kind of um, uh, absolutely amoral, selfish people who maintain a, a kind of um, sense of, what, of, of why it's okay to be that way, mm -hmm. right? Or give a model for how to be that way. So that's, that's one, one thing worth paying attention to. I thought it was worth paying to, to attention to in their dynamic. Um, the other was um, how, how, does, how, does a, how does a person who um, is himself very, you know, at some point, you know, pretty wealthy, continue to con consider himself uh, completely other than mm -hmm. the the zero point one percenters like like Dimitri, um, and Dimitri at some point points this out to him, right? It's a it's a it's a way in which relative wealth in a in a in a vastly um, uh, elongated wealth structure um, 
justifies every all the behaviors below it, mm -hmm. right? And something about um, sociopathic behavior that that can justify for people all of the behaviors that are less sociopathic. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No. I mean, actually, uh, when you're reading that that line stuck out uh, stuck out at me. The um, you know why be a capitalist pig when you can be an imperialist pig? <laughs> um, because those are different levels, and 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 um, and I think Frank ha has. Dimitri as this, he's just this really salient person in his life who, um, when, that's, when that's somebody who you can always compare yourself against, you know, you're always going to come out looking pretty good. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it must be really fun not to have a conscience, actually. Yes, right, exactly. To have no conscience exactly. and all the money in right. the world, that yeah. must be really fun. Um, but, um, but, yeah, can you talk, can you talk about that, um, the c capitalist pig uh, imperialist pig, kind of that differential. I mean, I I I enjoyed the bringing in of like the Asian markets, and mm -hmm. and also talk about um, how that uh, how that ties into um, crime and noir for you. Um, you know, the uh, the kind of line between just talking about capitalism and talking about crime. Well, from the earliest days of noir, right? Red Harvest. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, right? There's the, from the earliest days of noir, the, the kind of question of capitalism was in the was at the forefront. Third man is what that's and the, the third man, the perfect yeah. example. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's a um, it's it's uh, it's it seems to me to be just very much in the tradition in that in that sense. Um, I mean, you have you have people that cut people up in dungeons and. I don't have dungeons. <laughs> Yeah. I so where, where is that? Where is that <laughs> secret room where the guy is cutting people up? <laughs> so you have you have some sociopaths. I think that what I wanted in this in this case was a, a sociopath who was um, who was very ordinary. Yeah, he's not like a serial killer. He's not like a serial killer. No, no. I mean, although yeah, but yeah. He, he's not. But he's not like in it for the sadism. No, he no. It, he's just callous. Uh, and he's able to steamroll people with, uh, with his wealth and in pursuit mm -hmm. of more wealth and power and women, um, which, you know, at some point, what's the distinction? Like, why does it matter if he, w what part of it he's getting pleasure from? Um, yes, right, right. Um, but, yeah, I, re I, I really enjoyed that piece of it. And also, um, you know, I noticed that uh, this book is um, one that incorporates um, your love of travel, Mm -hmm. uh, you, you know, uh, I actually have very little understanding of like world markets and all this kind of arcane stuff that Dimitri gets into. Um, was was uh, was that kind of a natural outcropping of like wanting to write about other countries? Or um, I, I really enjoyed kind of the the variety of settings in this book. Yeah, I, I mean, I, it's it is part of my my travel. I mean, it's part of. It's part of travel. You know, I, I, one of one of the things I ended up reading for for the uh, Slacker book were the letters that John Adams wrote about his travels in Europe, and they were all about the kind of uh, financial structures of the factories that he was looking at and how they how they were working. Uh, you know, how they were how they were supporting themselves with debt financing and all this. You know, it was very. It's a. Uh, it's it's it's. If you if you travel a lot, one of the things you're going to notice these days is. The Chinese everywhere, for instance, right? Uh, Chinese industry everywhere. Chinese Chinese um, uh, corporations, Chinese uh, outposts um, in almost every country in the world. And you and and the and when you 
travel in a lot of very poor countries as I have, um, it's impossible not to see their place in the in the scheme of things and the and the and the way that their place in the scheme of things is um, going to be very very hard to change. So yeah, it's part of it's part of my 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 sense of the kind of relationship between everyday labor and the financialization of markets and that the and the fact that the financialization of markets is where the money is and not the everyday labor um, is is something that gets reinforced every every place I go the uh, the kind of dynamic that um, that it, 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 Dimitri is somebody who has a um, a certain kind of relationship with women, including his, including mm -hmm. his wife, mm -hmm. um, who, who's who's an Asian woman, like, uh, yeah. and um, and he has he has a relationship with the East and with money um, that all kind of fits under the rubric of like Orientalism, actually, mm -hmm. uh, you know, just in the sense of Orientalism as this idea of like this feminized other, um, and and it it all kind of aligns perfectly, and it, it in a way that. Um, f also fits with the noir tradition of the femme fatale, yep. um, and um, so I wanted to ask you about uh, you know kind of his relationship with women and Dimitri's relationship with women and um, and you know how you kind of um, tangled with the tropes you know uh, the tropes of gender dynamics in in the genre which are deeply ingrained. Yeah, well, in in I think I hope in a lot of different ways. Um, one is. Um, I really was, I was very interested in, in foregrounding the kind of homoerotics <laughs> of the, of the, of the noir tradition. And, um, you know, you can't love Chandler without loving that part of Chandler too. Right. And, uh, and, and, and foregrounding how women function in male, male, you know, bisexual anyway, um, eroticism. Um, and the, and so that, that was that was that was part of it, you know the 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 fact that um, I guess isn't giving too much away, but Frank falls in love with Dimitri's wife. I think you mentioned that early on. I did. Yeah, okay, I he falls in love with Dimitri's wife, and uh, and um, you know uh, Rene Girard uh, has um, this thing about um, you know his basic theory of uh, of life is that the that we have a we're apes. We're we're primates. We ape each other. We mimic each other. We imitate each other. That's how we learn. That's how we decide what to wear. That decide to decide what we're, what we're going to do. Uh, and that is all fine and good. It all works fine until we start to imitate each other's desires. And once we imitate each other's desire for the same object, that's where conflict comes from. So that's the that's the basic Girardian theory of violence. And uh, and so the this kind of imitation of um, imitation of Dimitri's desires on Frank's part mm -hmm. um, leads him to the one really obvious conclusion: is he's going to imitate his yeah. desire for his own wife. And um, and so the the and and Frank is completely one hundred percent. You know, he's got. I love to give him uh, give him a little bit of awareness. You know, so that so that um, the 
novel doesn't feel too claustrophobic, mm -hmm. right? And like give him a little bit of the awareness that uh, my readers, I think, are always ahead of him. Yeah, right. Just a, but like just a just little bit. Just a little bit, yeah. right? And uh, and so, uh, but uh, but uh, the one thing that he's absolutely unaware of is that his uh, idea that he's going to rescue Yuli, um, Dimitri's wife, from this life with the with the, with the swine, um, is the Orientalist um, patriarchal fantasy par excellence, right? Yeah, right? And, and he doesn't, so, and he also doesn't understand why he's in love with her either. No, he credits, you know, it's just the thunderbolt, pretty much. Yes, when right. it's clearly about, you know, wanting to be, wear this man's skin in a way. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so, yeah, so and and what I I tried to I I I I've got I've got I think some interesting setups for that. Um, you know, there's a moment where they're in a strip club, little kind of tiny CD um, local strip club, and um, Frank is already having a kind of rescue fantasy um, for one of the women that's dancing there, and uh, and you know, so you know, it's this is this is kind of part of a, this is part of the kind of culture of sex and gender that has is, has already made Frank what he is. It's it's a continuation of it, not a not a new out of the blue moment. So you said you were um, thinking about uh, spending more time with these characters. Uh, have you already started uh, writing a sequel or are you interested in doing one and what would that look like without giving away, I guess, what happens in this one? I think that um, Yuli would be a huge part of it. Pro maybe the biggest part of it, but I okay. haven't quite figured that out yet. Um, because I think that she's a really interesting character who's written in this in this novel she's written almost in uh, uh, you know like Rachel Cuss's outline she's she's almost written in outline right because the people who are talking about her have no idea who she is really mm -hmm. um, and and we as readers I think get a sense that this is a woman who is very different from the way she's being represented by the men that are mm -hmm. talking about her um, and so. Um, we we get that a little bit, but it's very very much at the end, and and uh, so I thought it'd be fun to kind of just really work with it, with her now. Um, I I uh, we can keep talking, but I figured I'd give people a chance to um, ask questions. Sorry about the accent again. <laughs> the 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 original did. The the no the original guy who is the yeah the actual real life person who first gave me one of these stories. Um, he was that uh, he was British. Does that guy know was, about this book? Yeah. He's <laughs> brilliant, Tommy. <laughs> Is he, it, does he have that strain of amorality or just the charm? Yeah, well, I mean, okay, he's, he's, you know, he's of course morphed and he, he's, he's not exactly the same person, but it's, yeah, he's, he's morphed quite a bit. He's now from Liverpool, he, he was actually from Bristol. <laughs> no, he's morphed in other ways as well, um, but uh, but yeah, you know, it was it was an actual person, and and I was I was fascinated by by him. Um, because slippy is a very British word. 
Yeah, that was not that was not my that was not my idea. Um, I, I the novel is originally named Sugarfish. Oh, <laughs> and and I can see from the various people going that that's why nobody seemed to like that title. So um, and uh, so my my and it's a British publisher, uh, Repeater Books um, in London, and they um, and he hated Sugarfish and said. Um, I think you should call it Born Slippy. I didn't know what Born Slippy was. Um, oh, so you re you yeah. put the song in after? Yeah, I put the song in after he changed the title. So the song is kind of salted through the novel, um, but that was after he gave me the new title. Sugarfish, like the sushi restaurant. The sushi restaurant, yeah. Yeah. Named for the sushi restaurant? Yeah, he, it's just, he's, it's a, it was a complete, like, MacGuffin. It was a, 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 a red herring. It was just a, that, you know, they're standing, they need a, they need a password for an account. Uh, and, okay. and he looks up and he says, Sugarfish. <laughs> um, so I like the idea that, that, was, that there was absolutely no reason for it to be the title, except for that one moment. <laughs> Nobody else liked that idea either. <laughs> so... BJ, you didn't like it either, did you? <laughs> I was just saying you 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 didn't. Oh, you did like Sugarfish. Okay, good. Yeah. Just because I spent time there. Yeah. 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 So it's a place I knew. Um, the the uh, place in Connecticut is a place I knew. So, uh, basically, every place in the in the novel are, are based on places that I know fairly well, um, except for Jakarta. A fair amount of it takes place in Jakarta, and I've never been in Jakarta. And I think that for that reason, the Jakarta scenes are more um, convincing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm not confused by what I'm saying and not saying. I'm just is that where the, is that where the house is? Yeah. Oh, okay. Because I, I was actually curious if that was a real place because that that place uh, was one of the more vivid settings for me. They like huge kind right? of white house yeah, that were exactly. just like a wall all the way on that side. Yeah, that's completely made up. Huh? Yeah. So. Oh yeah. Oh, I love me my Ripley. Yeah. We have a cat named Ripley. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great yeah. cat name. You can't name a dog Ripley. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, Highsmith is Highsmith is high on my list cuz I love, you know, again, a great sociopath, right? I mean, this is a guy who is so much fun to to spend time with. And uh not many worse people, right? So, yeah. It's interesting because I, fe I feel like I see in some ways more of Ripley in, in, in Frank than in Oh, than Dimitri. interesting. He should start killing people <laughs> maybe in the next one. Well, um, I think that uh, when he's talking, and I guess, you know, when I'm reading it, he sounds a little energetic, but he's also very slow. 
know, at one point in the novel, he takes up uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu because even though he's got, you know, his his uh, European mistress and his Asian mistress and his and his uh, establishments and his adventures in Saigon and the weekends and that kind of thing, he still does not seem to have enough physical contact, so he starts wrestling on mats with men a few days a week. Um, and he, and he, he's, he's, uh, his wrestling style is like his construction style, um, which is that he's very slow. He just moves very slow, <laughs> it's very deliberate, very slow. Nothing, nothing energetic about it. And um, Dimitri says he was, you know, d d complains about how slow he is. And he said, "Yes, uh, Frankie, I had, I had no, I had no uh, ambitions in the building trades. I'm afraid it showed." <laughs> no? So he's he's like really just very, very kind of uh, lumbering, bearish, um, in in some ways as well. So I'm trying to I try to keep both of those things. They are a kind of lumbering bear who talks a mile a minute. <laughs> no. Uh, is that what this guy was? Not, not so much. This, those are. The, I think both both parts of that are exaggerated, and and have, uh, and various things about him have been attenuated. And yeah, he's he's become, as you know, you write fiction. These people, they just they just surprise you, don't they? Um, are there other questions? What's the hardest thing you find about writing? Running an Instagram account as part of a marketing strategy <laughs> for it, I think, is the worst part of it. I mean, seriously, I mean, the the uh, the the writing uh, is. And especially writing fiction is just pure pleasure. Um, just there's nothing more fun in the world of writing than than writing fiction. So, I and I and I had a I had a blast writing this thing. I just I just you know start to finish and and the editing stuff as well. Even in the editing, like uh, all of a sudden somebody would say something and I just ah, <laughs> 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 you know. I just, I like, I really felt like they had said something funny that surprised me. Um, and so that, that I, I find it just pure pleasure. The, the hard stuff is, is, is really just kind of worrying about publishing it and all of that, all, everything that comes after. But the process itself, I just love. Um, do you think you'll uh, keep writing crime fiction and noir? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I have started another one which is a kind of mass incarceration novel. It's not as much fun. Yeah, it doesn't sound. No, no, it's a more serious, a more serious book. And, uh, and so I'm not sure I'm gonna be able to stick with it. I think I need the fun part. Um, so I've, I've, started, I've started that. And so that, and that of course is crime fiction as well. It's, mm -hmm. a, it's a thriller with a, with a um, um, mass incarceration backdrop. It's a prison industry thriller. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and capitalism and crime. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm, I, I, I want to, I want to do another one like this. This was, this was, this was the most fun. Um, we'll see, we'll see. I've, I've, I've written a, I've written a book since this um, that I think is also fun. That's called Aimlessness: An Introduction, which is uh, a short, a short philosophy book. Um, that's coming out 
next this year. Oh, and, you have a uh, two-book year. Yeah, as it turns out, yeah, <laughs> kind of beginning and end, but yeah. And uh, and then I'm finishing up the third volume in the travel series. Um, so, so that I've been I've been working on those two more than more than the next novel. Okay. But, but I can't wait to get back to it. In the relationship with the book, yeah, the um, the my my theory of of life is um, that productive procrastination is the is the way to, to, to the successful life. So I, I, what I do most of the time is play hooky um, on the book that I'm supposed to be writing by writing another book. Um, and so um, I, during those five years that I was, that I was rewriting it, I wrote, I wrote two, two other books. I published two, wrote and two, published two other books. Um, so a lot of the time what would happen was I would think, okay, well, that was fun, but it's kind of a mess. Um, it's not really a book yet. Um, maybe I should fix it. On the other hand, I could work on this book and I just like you know go go and do that for a while. So a lot of what happens is that you're away from it and uh, and and getting away from it, as we know, you know that whole thing. Put it in a drawer for a, for a few months. Um, that if you have the the luxury of being able to do that, that is that is a great thing for letting structures emerge that you were not entirely clear about. So um, rereading the rereading the thing after you've been away from it for a while, you think, oh, well, that's what's wrong with it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, there's got to be more than one character. <laughs> <laughs> Things like that. You know, you're just, I mean, you just like, you learn, you learn what's wrong. And uh, and can go back in, and and be and be kind of refreshed and like re-meet these characters and think, oh, that's that's interesting. Well, I don't think actually this one would say that to that one anymore. Now that I think about it, at the time I had to have them say something, and I hadn't thought it through, so they just say something and we move <laughs> on. But now I realize oh, that character would never say that, and so you kind of uh, you different people start to emerge in the text and that kind of thing. So it's uh, it's it's. Um, but the kind of, I often think of it, I used to, I grew up on the East Coast, and so one of the things I had to do as a kid was shovel snow right off the driveway. And there's this thing where you kind of push a snow shovel down the driveway. Um, my Canadian friend is laughing, like, you don't know about shoveling snow. <laughs> uh, <yeah. laughs> uh, push, the, push the shovel down the driveway, and it, it kind of piles up in front of it, and then you, you can't push it anymore because it's just too big and too heavy, so you have to kind of get in there and dink it, throw it out, out and throw it out and throw it out and, and then you can start pushing down the driveway again um, and eventually you can push everything down the driveway once and that's I, I think of writing it like that like you're 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 pushing it pushing everything ahead and then you end up with a big pile up um, and then you have to get rid of the pile up and get some smooth pushing again um, I don't know if that makes any sense but <laughs> it was partly deciding that I was going to write a genre novel, and that that and that and that I was not going to swing for the fences. I was not, you know, I was not going to go for literary immortality. 
um, I was going to write a genre novel because people do that. It's and uh, and some people write wrote three of them a year, you know, thirty times in a row, right? And ended up with a hundred of them. So I, you know, so I can I can do this. I, and uh, and Henry James couldn't do that. He could only write a novel a year. <laughs> so it was it was mostly the the genre decision that that freed it up. And also, you know, it's funny. I, I when I when you read as a literature professor, you tend to read good books. Um, you read a lot of good books. Uh, when you're reading as a book review editor, you end up reading a, a mixture of books. And uh, and so at some point you can look at one and you can think, oh, huh, this is getting a lot of attention. People seem to think this is a good book. Uh, I can't be Toni Morrison, but I can do this. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that was part of it freeing up too. Um, oh. One more. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yes. And uh, to friends and to my agent and um, to, but the, the friends, the friends first. Um, and, you know, that's a, um, there's a, it's a barter economy. I'm 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 the first reader for a, for a few people that are, and they're and I have a few people who are my first readers and uh, and um, so they read it um, when my wife read it and said um, you did it I thought okay let's go get an agent <laughs> so yeah Lori and I are, are each other's first writer, readers for most things. How much is it? Is it sort of, is there a truth to the beginning? There's truth on every single page. <laughs> uh, you know, you know, the, uh, and we can't really have a, a full discussion on on uh, realism in in literature, right? But but the but the the almost every character in the book has a real life origin of some kind uh, so in some cases there there are there's this there's this character um, and I when I when I read in New York um, uh, a, a friend of mine from high school came out and he said I know who that guy is and, <laughs> and it was half of him was a guy I went to high school with um, and, and, and the other half is one of my first readers actually um, so it, you know it, it was a, a little melange of those two those two people and the and the and the settings and the and the and the relationships are all all have some some relation to a, an actual an actual person and an actual set of events, um, but they're all mixed up and and um, and mixed together and you know kind of like a, more like a, a smoothie than a police report. <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, any last questions? Um, okay, well, this is, this is great. Uh, this is a pleasure to do. And, uh, w there, there are books for purchase and, uh, Tom will be signing and, um. Thank you, Steph yeah. Cha, for everything that you do and for this. <laughs>
And thank you all for coming out. This is really, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a dream. Thank you so much. Congratulations. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.